Okay, so my friends, today, Hades, Gehenna, Sheol, what the hell? Thank you. Beautiful. Thank you. All right. Well, excellent performance, everyone. And we're done. <laughs> it's a lot of fun. What am I supposed to do with my hands? Hey, everyone. Welcome back to the common room. My name's Dan. I'm here with Jimmy, with Garnet, and to this week with Brandon. Woo. And we are talking about uh, hell. Really fun subject <laughs> this week. Um, so I just wanted to start this conversation off by going around the room and just asking, like, when you were a kid and hell was described to you for the first time, or you thought about what hell was, what did that look like? Yeah. Uh, I mean, early on, like, I feel like it's a lot of the, like the cartoonish depictions where it's like, you've got the river of lava and like this deep underground cavernous area that apparently has like a red glow all the time and like demons flying around. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Like the cartoon version of hell was very much so what I envisioned it to be. And so, yeah. 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 I'd say, I'd say the same thing. Like, um, you know, uh, being constantly submerged in, in lava, uh, you know, little pointy imp like demons with their little pitchforks, pitchforks poking people, uh, you know, uh, skulls and bones all over the place. Who knows what there was, would have come from because everybody's already dead anyways, uh, or, or is alive in this sphere. I don't know. Yeah. But, uh, yeah. yeah, yeah, definitely, definitely the, um, the, the whole lake of fire thing. Right. Yep, for me, I grew up on the tail end of like the 80s slash 90s satanic panic. So my image of hell as a kid is like directly tethered to uh, the artist Carmen and his dramatic music videos depicting like the really like, yeah, like the champion. I don't know if you remember that. I was introduced to Carmen late in life, yep. um, but it holds up. Or it doesn't hold up. No, that <laughs> your description of him holds up. Yeah. Oh yeah, which is invitation in the champion. I still have like, oh my gosh, that must be what it looks like, and I'm terrified of it. Yeah, yeah. I I feel like I was always confused between like the lake of lava or the lake of fire, and then like these um, these ideas that it's this place of like eternal darkness. Mm-hmm. I mean, like how do you have both of those things at the same time? Cause fire turns the lights on. Right. Oh, <laughs> interesting. Yeah. yeah. And then yeah. at the same time, um, or, or a similar sort of confusion around it being full of demons or Satan living there, but also like it's a place of punishment where like God sends people there. So like why are the demons and and the devil hanging out there? Like, why is that their base? Why are they the jail killers? Yeah, exactly. Pain. Yeah, yeah. So just just generally confused about a lot of that. But I think, uh, sort of across the board here, we we pretty well represented kind of like a pop culture view of what hell is, and and often I think what a lot of people's sort of common um, uh, understandings, I guess, of yeah. the idea of hell are. Um, but it turns out that's pretty far departed from um, what we find in scripture. Mm. Um, Jimmy, I don't know if you want to give us maybe a little bit of an introduction into um, when we when we see the word hell used in the Bible or when the Bible talks about hell, what are some of the, uh, the, the different images being? Yeah. Well, spoiler, the word hell never appears in the Bible. Nowhere. So um, there's some different definitions that English translators have rendered into the word hell. But there wasn't really a cum- it's, it's a cumulative description, right? So early records and uh, the earliest 
forming of the Torah and then the Tanakh, it, uh, it was Sheol, which is the abode of the dead, gloomy caves and darkness. It was the underworld. Uh, they didn't really have an economy. Ancient Jews and Israelites didn't have an economy of like eternal suffering. It was just separation and darkness. You're out into the abyss. And then in the um, intertestamental period, that's when a little bit more of the Hades um, and the Tartarus or Tarturo came, where it was like, it's more than that. It's the, it's the resting place of the dead until final judgment. And then Jesus actually provides some, clar- some clarity or some teaching, particularly towards religious people, which is where we get the terminology. He will use the word Hades, uh, but most often he uses the word Gehenna, which is the uh, which, which was a, a place in and outside of the gates of Jerusalem, which had become the city dump and also a bit of a makeshift burial ground, which is derivative from a time in um, first and second Kings where, uh, it was the Valley of Ben-Hinnom where people literally sacrificed their firstborn sons to the God Molech in the hopes that he would not pour his wrath out upon them. And then two Kings in particular, like, we're not going to do this anymore. And King Josiah in particular is like, no, this is just going to become a dump. Like this is a desecrated place. It's never what God intended, but it is a good image of how far, um, people and power and politics and religion can take people literally into the mouth of hell. It's just not um, what was intended. So does the word hell ever appear in that common form in any of the canon of scripture? No. Are there multiple words and images that uh, the writers and Jesus included uses to describe what is after for those that have chosen the uh, the antichrist way, the, the way that is departing from God? Yes so interesting like you know it's it seems to be such a cornerstone of i guess like a layman's um understanding of the christian faith that hell hell is just this like yeah it's it's an important aspect of the belief system and yet it doesn't make any presence whatsoever um in in scripture um maybe uh, I just want to backtrack a little bit going through those different definitions. So, so Sheol is the, is the term used most often in the old Testament. Yeah. It's underworld, gloomy caves, the place of the dead, not the eternal resting place, but it's somewhere that what early on, actually it's where everybody went. It was the, it was the resting soul pause place where things got sorted out. But I mean, the ancient Jews and Israelites had already experienced hell on earth and it was slaves. Right. So for them to be like, things can get worse. I can't, w- there's no way. Yeah. So I think everybody goes there and God will sort it out based on um, their own sense of righteousness, et cetera, et cetera. Um, yeah. And then, yeah, it does develop. It, it's given more color, uh, certainly towards the end of the prophets and in the intertestamental period of like, no fire, no lava, no Carmen. But um, certainly there's, there's, it seems like it's a judgment place. It's a place that it's, it's the cast out darkness. Oblivion is a great word for it. It's yeah. Oblivion of God where it's like, no, you're not, this isn't your, your finitude is, is ending here. That's it. Hmm. Cast out into judgment and darkness. Yeah. So, and where do we get some yes. of this? I'm just wondering where the, the depiction at least of what we just talked about. Yeah. All these things yeah. that we've, we've heard of in pop culture come from. Yeah. Well, I mean, there's, wonderful religious research that it's um it's the middle ages 
is is really where mm-hmm. the middle age catholic church yep. is where we start to get a little bit more color and by that i mean like red fire color tone to um to, to, to the depiction of punishment as it relates to the afterlife. And then with Dante's Inferno, mm. that's where you really get an artistic rendering of a possibility of an afterlife. And with a very divided world at the time, not dissimilar to now, that became a real like uh, something to grab onto. Do you see what happens when you don't live right, when you don't care for the poor, when you think you're getting away fr- with pick your poison, you know, God will punish you through pain. You know, Um, and then for some reason, and I'm not clear on the recent history and developments, but for some reason, the Western evangelical, particular Western evangelical white church really took that on and doctrinalized that. But, you know, it's not around the world, like even present day Greek Orthodox tradition, Coptic tradition, um, their their economy of like fiery brimstone sulfur burning forever is just relatively non-existent they would say well where did you get that from it's never been part of our tradition you know yeah now conversely they also marry scripture and tradition and jesus there's not really a an arc so they would say well sure you can treat the bible but then you have to interpret it through the history of our uh forefathers and the the tradition of the church Mm -hmm. so yeah, I, I find that so interesting. I mean, we were we were kind of joking and, and going through the uh, the the circles of hell and Dante's Inferno uh, before we started recording, and um, you can you can really see kind of the human hand in the like alignment or the yeah the idea of different layers of punishment. Like at, right there at the the ninth circle, the the worst possible punishments are like betraying one's nation. It's like it's treason, basically, right? Like a treachery. It falls right, yeah. It falls right in hand with uh, with sort of this human idea of like these are the worst possible things that you could do, and, and it's like, what's happening now. Yeah, yeah. It's commentary on culture. Yeah. yeah, but you could totally see that being weaponized, like the and, and literally was, the religious belief weaponized. That that, yeah. that book, like literally, if you read if you read uh, Dante's Inferno, it, it's it, a lot of it is a political hit piece because mm-hmm. he's placing. Um, He's placing politicians from history, but also like contemporary yep. in different layers of hell as a, you know, a demonstration of, well, this is how bad they are. Yeah. And wow. I mean, Dante is borrowing conceptually and ideolo- ideologically uh, John the Evangelist or John the Elder, whoever wrote the book of Revelation, who mm-hmm. did the same thing. Like the, the book of Revelation is not future projection and prediction. It's apocalyptic literature that shows a greater spiritual reality that's commenting on the craziness that's happening right now. So the writing of Revelation on the island of Patmos is a direct point of a finger and another finger towards Domitian, Nero, and the Roman government and their occupation. Interesting. You know, so it's not just like, oh, this is what heaven looks like. It's very small and only a few people get in. And also like that Jesus is both a bleeding lamb and a big dude on a horse with a tattoo. He's got a sword and a sickle, but also much love in his heart. Mary gets swallowed by a dragon. The dragon might be Satan, might be the Antichrist, and the angels are so freaking weird looking. Like again, it's not it's not a future depiction of an ancient reality. It's a present depiction of a spiritual reality that God is not okay with. And I think Dante's Inferno is another it's like a it's like a, a, a gel or a lens that's layered on top of 
what is happening now and it's not okay. But the danger of that is when you go, oh, perfect. That's the accurate depiction of what of the eternal reality of the damned or the lost or, or mm-hmm. pick your term, you know? Yeah. Yeah. That, I mean, that description of revelation just makes me think I, I, uh, I can't wait for that episode on uh-huh. revelation yeah. at some point. Jesus and Nero, Jesus and the mission. Yeah. Um, yeah, Brandon, you've done kind of a lot of, uh, work and research into, I guess, like that time period where Dante's Inferno really had a lot of influence. Yeah. I wouldn't say I've done a lot of research, but it said I have background in classical history. So I like this kind of yeah. stuff. So. Do you want to give like a 20 second commercial for what it is? I'm just conscious of some of our viewers. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, it's part of a larger work called the divine comedy. And it was essentially a, um, you have this guy, Dante, Dante, I think it's pronounced Alighieri. Sorry if I've slandered yep. any Italians, uh, <laughs> but uh, it, it was a, it was a, it was a very long poem where he essentially goes through depictions of the different facets of the afterlife. So we're talking to so Inferno. He's talking about uh, about hell, and then I, I'm blanking on the middle one. Uh, but he talks about um, uh, purgatory, and then uh, Paradiso is a, is he's talking about heaven, uh, and uh, so. Uh, Inferno is probably the one that's best known because I'm told I haven't read through the entirety of the Divine Comedy myself because it's it's a it's a thing, uh, but uh, I'm told that uh, that uh, Inferno is probably the one that's best known because it's probably the most coherent. Um, he gets kind of off the rails as he goes on, um, and uh, but yeah, it's essentially uh, a, a very much a product of his time. Like uh, we mentioned earlier, he's 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 slotting different folks into the different layers of hell that he feels they belong in um i think i it's it's one of the earliest depictions i'm familiar with i'm sure it might appear elsewhere of of where he like uh highlights this idea that's become i think pretty popular today uh this idea of the virtuous pagan like the first layer of of hell is is like is like limbo it's where you know you don't qualify for heaven but you're not really going to get tormented because you were a good dude uh, so like he would put people like, like he, uh, like Saladin from the, uh, the, the, the Muslim leader from the time of the crusades would, would slot in there because he was honorable in the way that he conducted himself yeah. in Dante's estimation. So, uh, but not a believer, but, but not a believer. That's right. Cause, uh, and, and, and I think, uh, there's a, there's a passage even there where it describes how, how, uh, uh, some people who were once in limbo were taken up into paradise by Jesus when he died on the cross. Yeah, first Peter. Um and so yeah, it's sort of tied into into Dante's understanding of of the biblical narrative, but it's also very much a uh <laughs> a work of of complete fiction because a lot of the stuff he describes you don't see anywhere else. So like uh the circle he has he basically divides uh, divides hell into like nine different circles and they're all thing they're all based on a major sin and like some sub sin sort of fall in under that. So oh. um I don't know them all off the top of my head, but uh, I mean, I suppose I could pull up the thingamajig. We could get Willem to do that. Yeah, Willem, do you have the? Yeah, Willem, save me. <laughs> yeah, I just uh, I found a lovely website, a visitor's guide to Dante's Nine Circles of Hell. <laughs> Let's take a trip, shall we? First circle, Brandon said, is limbo. Second circle, lust. Third circle, gluttony. Fourth circle, greed. Fifth circle, anger. Sixth circle, heresy. Seventh circle, <laughs> violence. Eighth circle, fraud. Ninth circle, treachery. And yeah, the, uh, the that ninth circle is also where I believe Satan himself yeah. is, is frozen. What, what I find interesting going through this is we start with some of the seven deadly sins. Yeah. You know, lust, gluttony, 
greed, anger, heresy, tax fraud. Yeah. <laughs> tax fraud is is right below Satan. Yeah. Right. Yeah. It's like so much further down than the other deadly sins. Yeah. Yeah. Ooh. Yep. Stealing from the poor. Yeah. And I, I think I think like I said, like a lot of a lot of the way that he's ordered things, a lot of the way that that he's placed different people into the different circles like reflects his his worldview. Like yeah. uh, I think the perfect example of this and one that I quite find that I find quite funny is uh so on the ninth circle, which is treachery, Satan's there, he's frozen from the waist down. Uh but he's 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 uh written as he's depicted as being a three headed beast. And in each one of his mouths, he's chewing on a different person who is in the ninth circle of health because they've committed treachery. And those three people are Judas Iscariot, uh, Cassius, and Brutus. So we have the guy who betrayed Jesus, and then the two guys who betrayed Julius Caesar. Yep. And they're, they're kind of treated as being equal in their punishment. So All sons of God, whatever. Yeah. yeah. It's, all it's crazy. It's, yeah, it's pretty interesting. Yeah. Uh, but it, but yeah, it's, 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 it's worth bringing up when having this conversation, I think, because you see... A lot of the times, uh, or a lot of the depictions from around that time in the Renaissance of like hell and and demons and that kind of stuff, are 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 influenced by by this work. Like he was he like when you when you read the the Inferno, he maps out like uh, he gives a map of what hell looks like, and I guess that that found its way into the public yep. conscious. And it was you know it was an influential piece at its time. It's uh, I believe, and someone would have to double check me on this. It was influential on popularizing the Florentine version of Italian. Um, oh, and, interesting. And so uh, th that's how it became... to it, right? Sorry? So you add spinach to it? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Right. Uh, but anyways, uh, it was it was a very influential work. So you see that in the depictions of art. So like uh, one of the circles of hell, I don't remember which one actually has as a description, uh, you know, certain people who committed a certain sin, they're, they are being whipped by demons as their punishment. And so that's... It, it, you know, I think that's where we start to see this idea of demons as being jailkeepers, right? As opposed to the more biblical narrative, which is that you know Satan and demons—they're in hell because they too are being punished, right? That's that's an interesting point, Brandon. That yeah, it uh, Dante wrote uh, wrote the Divine Com Comedy in uh, like the Tuscan vernacular rather than Latin, which just kind of helped grow, and that's kind of helped what make Italy the um, kind of like the center of the Renaissance. Yeah. And so, you know, Renaissance, you know, uh, reinvigoration of arts, all that kind of stuff. And then, you know, a lot of that stuff started to be funded by, you know, churches, like churches would yep. mm -hmm. would hire these artists to depict stuff. So they, they're already steeped in the yeah. tradition of, you know, one of their base cultural things of importance is... Dante's Inferno. Yeah. And then so they're making art. And then the churches come in and say, Hey, can you make art for us? Mm -hmm. You're already making this stuff. So like the style just kind of inf infiltrates that way. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And it, it's it's also worth mentioning that in addition to being a kind of a political hit piece, it's it was very much Dante expressing this is the superiority of of Christianity. This is where you will end up and how you will end up if you're not, you know, part of the faith. Yeah. Right. So we're seeing a whole kind of like uh, yeah, the unfolding, I guess, of the influence of this work and the way that it kind of, uh, sort of spreads into the Christian faith, uh, after that. Um, so I guess what we're left with, um, 
nowadays is this view of hell as this place of torture, this view of hell as this place with demons and, and Satan as the jail keepers, so to speak. Um, and uh, sort of a common label we could use to describe that version of hell anyways is uh, a uh, eternal conscious torment is, is the sort of like mm. broad strokes label. The idea there being that hell is a place where when you die, if you are, um, if, if God determines that, that that is the place you will spend eternity, it means you will spend eternity there in suffering. Um, yeah, for, well, for eternity, right? I mean, like, it, would you put any more meat on the bone in, in terms of- I think that's the, like, common um, evangelical caricaturization of a few proof texty teachings of Jesus and quite a bit of um, Revelation 19 to 21. Uh, I don't think there's like uh, a, a crystallized voice throughout the New Testament that speaks clearly that the reality is what you just said. Right. I think there's borrowed imagery uh, throughout, but I mean, that's this is the, I mean, we're talking about hell thousands and thousands of years later after the teaching of Jesus and we're necessarily no more clear on it now or we're still wrestling you know? right so that should I don't know give us a little bit of pause lest we try to doctrinate or indoctrinate a particular crystallized view when I think the point of the narrative of scripture is God is just holy and loving um so there are consequences to the hell that you bring on earth or the heaven that you bring on earth. Right. Mm. Uh, and God is and will continue to deal with that. But the danger of going the road of Dante, of like, let me picture that for you and yeah. codify that for you. And then let me canonize that for you. So that it becomes crystallized in your consciousness that hell looks like this. Jesus only ever and always meant this. Paul further clarifies that, and if you go back to the earliest records of Scripture in the Old Testament, this is what they always intended, and none of that is true. Which so often is the tendency of uh, religion, just generally, is to like create structure where none previously existed, yeah. and find a way to systematize um, the mystery, I think, yep. of what Jesus spoke about when he spoke about the judgment of God, hmm. um, and about what comes after yeah um but eternal conscious torment has certainly uh i i think it's fair to say taken the the lion's share of um christian traditions and or captured the imagination of uh many christian traditions in terms of that is the dominant belief system mm -hmm. for what hell is it certainly seems to be what we were all raised on yeah right this idea that hell is this place of of torment and torture and suffering and uh and that it goes on forever. Yep. But that is not the only view of of hell and the year after. That's yeah. that's part of like for me even personally, like just thinking through my own relationship with God and as I've grown in my own faith, I'm like, this depiction of hell doesn't line up with my view of this loving, caring father figure. Mm -hmm. It just doesn't add up. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so I'm like, this this doesn't seem accurate. Like and and to me it it seems more that a more, I don't know if it's more appropriate, but a, a more realistic, in my opinion at least, depiction of what hell is, is the absence of God. Mm -hmm. And just this idea of like, 
if we choose to not live a life with God, to not accept God, then God gives us that option to say, hey, I don't want to be part of this. And so then when we die, when, when judgment does come, he's like, okay, you don't want to be part of this? That's, that's fine. So don't. So in that view, uh, hell is a place that is absent of God's presence. Are you still conscious in this in this state? Uh, what does that look like? I mean, I don't know. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> is is the real answer there? Is I I I don't know. I think that that it's more telling of what isn't hell than what is. Mm-hmm. Um, that there's like because we hear a lot through scripture as well of like everlasting life in God. And this idea of heaven is far more uh, shown than this idea of of hell. Right. But I also think that like the gift of free will, the gift of choice there means that we still have that option of saying no to that and of, of going down a path that is without God. Certainly. Yeah. I think the idea that there's, uh, like I've, I've heard, I guess like a, we could call it a version two of eternal conscious torment, which does look a lot like that, where it's eternal consciousness in the pre- or without the presence of God. So instead of flames and demons, it's just darkness and, and hopelessness. It's that void or, uh, it was shale. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Although that might not be a one-to-one with shale. Shale was more of a, yeah. Shale was the intermediary place where things got sorted out, uh, really underworld, uh, or the, the lowest part of the earth would maybe be another description of like an, an ancient Judaism and Israelite custom. I was like, I don't know. I don't know. It's somewhere down uh, in darkness, mm-hmm. away from the sun, away from the love of God. Uh, you're conscious and you just are there forever. So mm-hmm. yeah, I think, yeah. Um, and alone. I, I don't remember if it's in Exodus or, or Joshua, but uh, there's a moment where uh, the Israel, some of the Israelites have sinned in some way. And the, and the actual description is that like, uh, Sheol opened up beneath them and swallowed them. Yeah. Mm. So it's like as if it's beneath the ground. Yep. Like a physical, literally a physical underworld. Yep, exactly. Yeah. Which I think falls in line with, uh, we don't really have to get into the weeds on it, but a lot of like sort of ancient cosmology, the idea that yep. the earth is a flat plane and that hell is below and heaven is above. Yeah, there's layers, similar to the the nine layers of hell. It's, it's reflective of their understanding of a current cosmology. Um, so another variation, I think, Garnet, on, on what you were talking about with a important distinction, I think, is the idea of annihilationism, which is simply the idea that when you die and you you don't believe or um, I guess God ju- judges and deems it to be so, you simply cease to exist. So it's it's just it's there's no consciousness. It's simply hmm. if you choose that. uh a life in paradise with God is not what you want or, um, that, yeah, any, any variation of how you would choose to word that, uh, then that your fate isn't eternal torture or, um, or suffering. It's simply to, to cease to exist. Um, which I think is a view that's, uh, certainly, uh, recently taking quite a lot of, um, or caught a lot of, quite a lot of traction. Jimmy, I don't know if you want to, I uh, speak to that. Yeah. Well, I mean, again, it's interesting that you use the word paradise because right. a- again, um, in, in Christian orthodoxy, this, this notion that 
the the end fate and desire for God is that we would leave this world because it's going to burn. Uh, this world will cease to exist and we will be caught up in paradise or some heavenly world with the angels and clouds and harps and white robes and no cats, whatever. Um, <laughs> Forgot it, that layer of hell. Right. Yeah. No cats, no country. Yeah. So <laughs> it's, this is not what the Bible teaches. So Jesus with a thief on the cross, he does use the word paradise, which is the intermediary state of connection with Jesus. It's not the future reality. The future reality throughout the New Testament, which Jesus teaches the uh, imminent kingdom of God that's making its spark in the messianic work of Jesus, but then will become a future reality of the new heaven, the new earth, the new Jerusalem crashing into this world. So, so paradise and Sheol or Hades is the intermediary state while that, while people are given as much time as possible to turn towards God into the life that he always intended for them mm. to exist in. Mm. So I just want to make that clear. Whatever we believe about hell, what we believe about heaven is important too. Yes. You know, mm. so it, we are not going anywhere else, right? So there's wonderful Christian theologians, ancient and contemporary, that wrestle with this. And I think it's actually a beautiful d- depiction. N.T. Wright is somebody that I follow pretty closely in his treatment of the afterlife and um, the New Testament history. Uh, and he has like doubled down on, um, yeah, like it's back here. It's yeah. back here, right? New so, heaven or yep. new heaven and new earth. Yep. New Jerusalem, new heaven, new earth. So that, you know, so what happens in between then and now? Two possibilities. Jesus thief on the cross, you'll be with me today in some conscious, but not fully embodied, regenerated, resurrected state. You'll be with me in paradise, whatever that looks like. Not heaven, Ooh. not eternity, not eternity, but you'll be with me in paradise today. So there's a place of connection with the divine and Jesus that exists somewhere in a spiritual sense. Second option, soul rest. That today you will be, if you know, um, we die with, uh, you know, as believers, followers of Jesus, open to the work of God, um, not perennially rejecting God, there's a, there's soul rest, right? So that you literally, your soul rests until the regenerative work of resurrection, you have a new earth in Jerusalem, happens and then boop, we're awakened back to this, oh my goodness, okay, we're here in a physical, whole, spiritual, emotional sense connected with the divine and oneness and shalom, which is the chief end of like why this all got started in the heart of God, right? Mm. Uh, and that it's here, physical, together, the way that it was always intended. It's the the recreation of the Eden, right? Yeah. Interesting. I mean, I, I feel like- There's I, another podcast. It certainly will be another podcast, <laughs> and I'm going to start sounding like a broken record when I say that, but there's just so much to unpack there. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. So very interesting. So we come come back somewhat to the idea of- Annihilationism? Of, well, annihilationism in terms of there's- I, in what you just described, a certain subsect of people that simply choose uh, to sin, to to end, to not continue, then everyone else is sort of in this holding place, which sounds a lot like the Catholic idea, I think, of purgatory, Mm -hmm. except that purgatory is kind of seen as this like semi-punishment where you like do your, it's like you're doing your time, you're paying after, afterlife prison. Yeah, afterlife. And when you do your years, so you, you, you go to heaven after that. Yeah. So in this version, it's more of like, this is the holding place. Everybody goes. And then when the new heaven and the new earth come, we're... Everything's reconciled. Yeah, everything's reconciled. Yeah. 
So I think that that kind of cycles nicely into perhaps the last view of, uh, of hell. Um, even though I don't think it even incorporates the idea of hell at all, um, which is, uh, the idea of universalism. Well, before we get there, yeah. I have to come back to annihilationalism. Yeah, let's do it. I think that, uh, it is fascinating that a number of reputable New Testament scholars are circling back to that idea mm. as the clearest possibility that does incorporate fire, which is uh, a, a literary, hyperbolic, perhaps legit image that Jesus does consistently use. So Jesus, um, I mentioned in the teaching uh, the other day that like there's two things that I've heard, at least in pastoral studies and uh, um from, from sermons from other pastors, no smoke to these pastors in particular, but uh, two of these just falsehoods of Christian teaching that Jesus taught more about money than anything else, lie. Jesus taught more about hell than anything else, lie. Jesus talked about the kingdom of God and serving the poor. That was the bulk of his ministry, but Ooh. he did talk a lot about hell or, or Gehenna, like eternal um, eternal destiny as it, as it were in particular for those that are wicked and exclusively without exception, who is Jesus pointing the finger at when he is teaching about um, the eternity that is apart from God? It's exclusively and explicitly the religious folks. Yeah. Never the lost. Not once. You know, and there are countless examples. I mean, the woman at the well, Samaritan woman at the well, Zacchaeus, like these would be our contemporary examples of like your Christian street preacher with a big yellow sign saying, that is the person I'm talking about going to hell. God hates you. And Jesus does not hold a sign, does not condemn them, does not even say anything about the fires of hell or eternal punishment to those people who are definitely departed from the heart of God because he has come to seek and save the lost. Jesus has no patience though, and is liberal with his depictions of punishment with those that think they've got it together and are willing to harm people in the name of God. So did Jesus use the literary example, figurative or l legit, literal example of the fire of Gehenna? Yes, he did. And I think where that partners itself with um, annihilationalism and where we're, we, we've probably gotten it twisted is the example of fire itself. Now, it's interesting in Western Christianity, have you guys ever been able to keep a fire going? forever no 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 it's the same example here now jesus will use both in revelation uh, revelation 21 book of matthew uh, uh, as well pointing at religious folks and saying the everlasting fire now the word is actually consuming fire mm -hmm. it's the fire that does not go out because god is dealing with evil and is dealing with sin edward fudge is a great scholar about it uh john lennox who's actually a mathematician but is a theologian as well N.T. Wright, Craig S. Keen, like I, I can name a ton of like heavy hitter theologians that are like, well, at, what Jesus is doing is using the concept of the consuming fire mm. that consumes, and maybe there is pain involved, but it's not eternal torment, right? Um, Jesus will use eternal torment to talk about Satan, the accuser, Shatan, the accuser, and his demons, as well as in Revelation 21. He'll use that, the lake of fire that is set aside for not the lost, not the broken, not the sinful, but for Satan and his demons or his angels, right? So the the notion of Jesus, I would contend alongside these like heavyweight theologians um, contemporarily, 
the the depiction of fire is that elemental reality in first century Judaism of the thing that consumes that takes from one state to another from from embodiment to disembodiment uh, and I think that is the stark imagery that Jesus is using it's not just like uh, it's why like I can't quite get myself to universalism yet maybe I'll get there I'm a hopeful universalist but there does seem to be the justice of God meted through, um, meted out through through Jesus and dealing with injustice in particular, religious people who are absolutely screwing things up and Jesus uses legitimately fiery language. It would be better for you uh, to, oh, there's countless examples. So um, don't be afraid of those who can harm the body, the religious people who are willing to throw people in jail, persecute the church, kill the earliest followers. Be afraid of the person who can throw you into hell uh, uh, forever. Yeah. You know, yeah. Uh, he also Jesus uses the same phraseology for uh, the tongue that uh, your your tongue can be the fire starter, like a a, a tool of hell of the Gehenna mm-hmm. uh, that can harm people. So again, I think we really need to be clear and gracious uh, of that literary device and depiction that Jesus is using to certainly depict a very harsh reality of those, in particular, religious people like easy Jesus we got this we'll take it from here and Jesus is like oh boy Oof. you're not going to like this sermon yeah you know so is it is it in the language that Jesus uses uh, the the words that he uses that sort of indicates that's more of a consuming fire than a an eternal yeah i mean uh with with one exception Jesus uses the word gehenna mm-hmm. right uh, i'll i'll treat the gospel accounts revelation's a little bit different um, but the gospel accounts in particular, I'm not dealing with Paul, just dealing with Jesus. Jesus uses the word Gehenna explicitly with one uh, derivation, which is in Luke 16, when it's the story of the rich man and Lazarus. And Jesus actually uses the word Hades for that example. Mm-hmm. It was fascinating. Uh, won't go into that unless you want to. Um, <laughs> so yeah, the language that Jesus is using is Gehenna. So if you're sitting around as part of the crowds being like, Oh man, in no way, in no way as an ancient Jew or Gentile hearing this teacher talk, would you go, holy smokes, this is a future eternal reality with red demons and the artist known as Carmen. Oh my God. (laughs) You know, you'd be like, oh, it's, it's right over there. He's talking about Gehenna. It's a physical place that is walking distance from here where Outside of the Bible, there are descriptions of Gehenna as the place where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched because it was a fire that they kept going mm-hmm. because bodies, they rot. And very infrequently would you bury bodies down in the ground. They'd be in tombs or in caves or in um, ossuaries and boxes. Um, but those that were not like cared for, attributed to, or properly um, disposed of... Uh, would be thrown into this dump along with other it, it, it was a dump it's where all of the bodies went refuse poo-poos pee-pees that was all there and they had to keep the fire going to quench it and so jesus like that disgusting place that makes you ceremonially unclean you religious people that's your eternity that's where you're headed the way that you categorize religion that that outs people that keeps people on the out that's your reality right there mm-hmm. so nobody would have been thinking oh my goodness eternal conscious torment Maybe you can extrapolate that, but there was a physical example. It would literally be like a teacher today saying, um, you know, like you are in the way that you are treating people, you are in danger of living in Brantford 
you know, no smoke to Brantford. You know, we, we lived in Brantford, but just to pick a spot. Brantford catching straight. <laughs> that's right. Love you, Brantford. I really do. I really do. But like pick your spot where you're like, oh my goodness, that's a terrible, like an awful city right now. Flint, Michigan, a place that still doesn't have clean water. Like pick Brantford your spot. being compared to Flint, Michigan. <laughs> it's these, uh, every analogy breaks down, but you know what I'm saying? It's the not hole keeps getting dig deeper. But, but do you see what happened? As yeah. I mentioned those two cities, mm-hmm. it wasn't like any of us had to be like, what what is that place? Brant Brant does yeah it right it becomes Brantford? a joke almost. Yeah, you're like oh oh I know I get the image that you're bringing up here and wow that's not great. Again, no smoke to Flint, Michigan or Brantford, <laughs> for example's sake. But Jesus is refi- referring to an absolutely terrible physical reality that he could have pointed to uh, to depict a greater spiritual spiritual reality that he's pointing at people for. You know, saying, this is you, I'm talking to you, and that's your destiny. Is that what you want mm-hmm. for you or for others? No, no. So you should be really afraid that this is like your eternal destiny as opposed to just propping up your sense of religious power that you get to lord over people, tax people, hurt people, harm people, and out people with. Yeah. But really quick, Jimmy, can you go into detail about why he used Hades Yeah, as in that one yeah. specific example? I can really quick. I have no idea. Right. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> it's it's it, it's Luke sixteen is a is an interesting one. Uh, that story doesn't occur in any of the other gospels, nor does the story of Zacchaeus. So I I don't know. It's it's a weird one. You know, um, it, if you followed the position of where that parable uh, exists, it's sandwiched between two other parables about the misuse of money that harms people. Right. So. This is my opinion, which I can give. I think Jesus is using uh, Hades and heaven, or the bosom of Abraham is what he calls it. So it's the banquet table, the feast at the end of time, where you know the people who are good and loved by God are, are around the table, and the people who are not, who have misused their resources, are somewhere else. So he uses the, t- the term Hades, potentially, maybe, as a holding place, and Abraham's bosom as a holding place as well. Um, so I think he's giving like in the in-between while this gets sorted out, you can see who God actually loves. It's the poor man who has all sorts of trouble in this world, Lazarus, um, and the rich man who has very few troubles and the kingdom subverts the two things. You know, it's like, you don't, you don't want to be the rich man. You don't, you want to be, um, Lazarus and it's showing, which is in part where I think in part. Uh, where Catholics derive some of their theology of purgatory, of like this rich man is possibly in Hades or purgatory. He is learning the damage that his life has caused mm-hmm. and actually invites us, please go tell my brothers, please go tell my brothers, I don't want to be here, I don't want to be here, please go tell them. And Jesus is commenting back on like, well, you have everything that you need. You have the Moses, the law, and the prophets, and now the resurrected hope of the Messiah in front of you, and still you don't believe. Sorry, there comes a time where the door closes and it's locked from the inside. What will you choose? So I would contend that that's the reason, perhaps, for Jesus using Hades there. I I do think it's intentional that he's not using the word, he's not intentionally using that fiery depiction of Gehenna. Although, in the text it also says, like, these flames are tormenting me. Uh, Please just, can uh, Lazarus dip his finger in water and touch my tongue? But again, the, the literary example breaks down because then like, okay, 
if you if you choose that as a proof text for eternal conscious torment, boy, heaven seems rough as does hell because then it depicts heaven as you can see down into whatever the existence of hell is and you're indifferent. You're like, oh, I'm not going to help you. And vice versa. In hell, you can see heaven. So you're on fire and you can see like the the picture of glory. Like it's just so bad. So if you treat that as a proof text for eternal conscious torment, friends, it's it seems much worse than we ever thought. But if Jesus is using that as a commentary on the damage that we do to each other and the misuse of money as it relates to the poor, that seems like a more tenable position to me. And there are lots of wonderful scholars whom I love that would absolutely disagree with what I just said. Tim Keller being one of them, the late Tim Keller being one of them. So mm-hmm. something that stands out to me, just as we we're talking about parables as well, is like that Jesus did commonly speak in parables using story of familiar things to be able to explain some of the stuff that we can't necessarily grasp easily. Yep. So when you talk about um, Jesus referring to Gehenna, if I've pronounced that correctly, yep. and how that would make, like, this is this place of unclean, this place is- City dung. Yeah. Well, and and to be unclean, that was something that would keep you from God, right? right. Like this is a, 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 you had to go through these ritualistic cleanings to then be yeah, able sure. to go to temple. So is this then essentially another parable to say like, this is not actually about the burning. This is not actually about the rot. This yep. is not actually about that. This is about that separation again, going back to what we we're talking of deciding to be separate from God. Yeah, maybe I'll give my opinion. Um, and then I'll, I'll play devil's advocate to myself. <laughs> um, my opinion is this is not about eternal life or death. Mm. This is about the misuse of money and the harming of people now and what the eternal results left unchecked, what the eternal results could be. It's a story about money, you know, it's a story about poor people and money, you know? Um, so I don't know, it doesn't make sense to me to just pop that out of the, of Luke's gospel narrative and say, oh, see, this is just a standalone. Like Luke is grouping these things for a reason, you know? Um, now, devil's advocate our reformed brothers and sisters um would would disagree and say no it it might be a parable sandwich in other parables but it might not be a parable because it's the only time in parabolic language that jesus actually names names so good samaritan there once was a man uh prodigal son there once was a father who had two sons um there once was a shrewd manager jesus says lazarus and a rich man so yeah, at least one name. At least one name. Well, I mean, there's Greek. Um, the, the I don't know how far you want to go with this, but the uh, there he does name the rich man too. It could be a general word. I think it's uh, bivis or something is is the the word um, that Jesus uses to refer to the rich man. So that could be a title, a general description, similar to the beginning of the book of Luke and Acts, where he uses the word Theophilus. Um, could be just a description or it could be a name, but that's the troublesome part of the text too, that I think mm. the brilliance of Jesus just like, I'm going to mess with their heads a little bit to get them to a greater reality. Um, but that's a, that's a troublesome part for an, an annihilationalist. Luke 16 is that like, shoot, I should probably chill my butt a little bit and think <laughs> through this instead of being like, no, that's absolutely immensely clear. Mm-hmm. So, so I have a, uh, clarifying question that, yeah. uh, I wanted to ask for a little while now. So when you you use the term Hades, 
Uh, is that the proper Greek pronunciation of Hades or ancient? Yeah. Okay. It, yeah, it's a lazy Greek pronunciation. Hades, Hades. Okay. Same. Same. Day. I see. I I figured as much, but my uh, my ancient Greek is not as good as my ancient Latin, which yeah. is also not good. Ditto. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so to swing the pendulum in in the opposite direction, if we can, let's finish out these uh, three sort of alternate views of hell with universalism. Universalism, um, which is a super fun one that's not going to get me in trouble at all. Um, but uh, yeah, at, the, at for the sake of. Um, yeah, for the sake of representing all the positions, I'll do my best to kind of represent and defend it. Um, the universalist view, I think, holds an extremely high view of the sovereignty of God yep. in that uh, a universalist believes that uh, God is capable of redeeming all people yes. regardless of uh, the lives they lived in the here and now. So the idea is that... Uh, if universalism is true, that um, after we are dead and gone, God has the ability to hold, whether that's in a place like Sheol or uh, Abraham's bosom. Yep. Uh, I'm just getting some proof text yeah, universalism out here. Yeah. Has the ability to redeem the souls of those who have strayed from him the furthest and that it's possible that God's version of justice is that he brings all of his children back home mm. um, in one way or another. Yep. And I think that universalists hold this position because they try, uh, their, their main concern is to reconcile the idea that God is a loving God, that he loves us unconditionally, um, and that there isn't anything that we can do or say um, or represent in this life that can separate us from him. Romans 5, yep. Um, and that uh, when Jesus when Jesus died, uh, and this this will just get into this will just get into uh, the the mechanics of salvation, which I, we won't go there today. But uh, when Jesus died, he truly died for all people, um, not just for the people who say a prayer and accept his name, not just for people who go to church every Sunday or follow his commands uh, to the best of their ability, but literally for all people. Um, and that that is a position that people hold. It is not a popular position, and it it is certainly a controversial position, but it is a position, and I think it's worth representing. Hmm. Yeah. Isn't there also an aspect to it of like, Cause I think I, I don't remember where I heard this description, but there's this idea that like uh, the fire you talked about, Jimmy, that uh, that consumes, it burns off the chaff, so to speak. And then once that, once that process is finished, you're restored. So you can either choose to believe in Jesus and spare yourself the pain, right. or you can go through this awful process and end out end up redeemed on the other side. Yeah, anyways. progressive universalism is kind of description of that exactly. Yeah, right. okay. Curtis, one way or the other, you will learn. Mm -hmm. I think even holding that view is, is interesting just because, I mean, I, I can, I will simply speak for myself as someone who's raised in the church, who's been, um, a Christian my whole life. I, I certainly can't hold myself to the standard of perfection mm -hmm. that seems to be the requirement for making it into heaven. And I, I realize that Jesus's grace and, and salvation is, is part of that process. 
but to compare myself to someone who doesn't believe, uh, oftentimes it is easy to find someone who, from a human perspective at least, is a far better person than I am. Yeah. Um, and to, yeah, to believe that uh, someone else should be subjected to a process of purification that I shouldn't have to go through. Yeah, it's a it's an interesting concept. It's an interesting idea just to explore what that looks like in a system. Yeah. Like what is just and what is unjust. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think one more important kind of point I want to point to with the universal universalism belief system is that universalists use this to uh, deal with a lot of cognitive dissonance around what happens to people who never encounter the message of Jesus. Um which is a staggering number of people when you really think about it. I mean, the faith spread over the course of 2000 years, but for many of those centuries, there are parts of the world that were entirely untouched by the message of God and different positions of this argument have different ways of, of justifying how, yep. uh, how that works, how the mechanics of salvation work for those who, who don't know Jesus. Um, but universalists, I guess, take the simplest approach and say, we all go through the same process. Um, yeah. I like the idea that God is able to save and redeem even after a life not well lived. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that that's great. And honestly, I, it's something that I don't think I have room to really have an opinion on because that's God's business as far as that of how he chooses to to be at work in people's lives. Yeah. What I don't necessarily think I agree with is the idea that like, oh, everyone has to go through this process mm. because then that sort of takes away the gift of free will. And Certainly. still like, I still think even if universalism were to be the be all and end all of it all, there would still be that ask at the end of like, do you want this? Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, we can't do we we can't discount the importance of uh of free will and all of it for sure. Um I do think and this isn't necessarily going to lead us to any kind of conclusion, but we hold an extremely high view of free will as westerners in this time mm-hmm. and place. Um that is not uh typical um I think in the long tradition of the church mm-hmm. and certainly in the long tradition of humanity. And I think that sometimes we have to humble our own um, prioritizing of the of its value, not to say that it is not valuable, but that maybe it isn't the paramount. Um, not the apex, yeah. It is not the apex value um, in in all of this. Yeah. Um, but I do think that this this kind of takes us sort of to to where we may land this conversation is just. Um, just thinking about like why is it that hell is an important such a cornerstone belief like why is this something we that humans have debated i mean since jesus left really mm-hmm. um since he returned to heaven uh why is this something that uh is so contentious why is it so uh integral to the faith why do we need an answer to this question why do we need to know how god's judgment works or um why do we need to feel like there's uh, this inherent sense of justice? Like, what is where's that drive coming from? Yeah, I think historically, and even just I'm navigating my own s- spirit right now as you're asking that. 
I think it's one of the attributes of God, holiness, the desire for justice, and by virtue of justice, the pervasive injustice that has happened in the world for so long, uh, and the question mark around suffering. Why do people hurt? Like, why? And, and when will that end? There has to be a heaven and there has to be a hell. Why do people install and embed hurt in the lives of others? There has to be justice to deal with that once and for all. And is there anything, anybody, any deity that cares enough to do it? Yes. God's holiness sets him apart and makes him fit to judge the conduct uh, and the earth. So I think it's a, it's a valuable exercise and claim that the church has continued to wrestle with as beacons, as the cities on the hill, mm. the beacons of light for the earth to be like, but there is terror and awfulness and sin and brokenness in the world. Is anybody going to deal with that? Yeah. God, are you going to deal with that? And how? How do we know on the other side of eternity when you regenerate and resurrect that this thing isn't just going to spiral back into right. what happened in Eden? Please deal with it. Please deal with it. So yeah. I think that's a little bit of the heart of, very quickly, the heart of like where this came from and the desire to, and also the promise of scripture, of the meta narrative of scripture that we will be back in Eden perfection, garden living with the creator. But there's a lot of stuff that has to be dealt with in the in-between. Mm. Yeah. And I think returning to universalism for a second, uh, and I'll, I'll put the preface on this or the, uh, the, uh, the, yeah, I'll, I'll, uh, the disclaimer on this, yeah. <laughs> the caveat that, or, or at least I'll out myself as being someone who would really, really like to believe that universalism is a thing. You know? Um, and, uh, because, uh, and I think what makes it attractive is, especially in Western society, um, there, there's this societal pressure of, of, um, you know, we, we, I'm not going to judge you for the things that you do. You shouldn't judge me for the things that I do. We should just be, be tolerant of one another. Um, and, and so that, that, that image, that societal pressure, uh, we, we want a God like that. We want a God who, who is not if he's who's not going to to come down too hard on the on the children that he's supposed to be loves because he's supposed to be a good father a good mm -hmm. parent doesn't doesn't punish their kids more than they deserve but that that's kind of where the tension lies is 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 in the fact that uh, on the one hand we want god to to be this sort of loosey-goosey like oh he'll forgive anything but on the other hand uh, as a society, we are also very big on on justice and the idea that when somebody does something wrong, they should pay for it. Yeah, uh, and and you see it in 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 all aspects of our culture. Yeah. Uh, you see it play out on social media all the time. This yeah. idea that your consequences, your your actions, your words, all these things should have consequences and you should pay for them. Yeah, and so it, it's it's interesting in that like there's this pressure that we kind of want to have our cake and eat it too. We want God to be loosey goosey, but we also want God to to punish people. So uh, the same, the, I feel like universalism is this sort of try a, a way of trying to reconcile those competing ideals of that. In order for God to be just, He has to punish, but also we don't want Him to punish too hard. Yeah. And so, uh, I and and for that reason, I would like to believe that universalism is a thing because I would like there to be justice for people. Uh, you know, who have been wronged, but at the same time, uh, I, I find it, I, I find it hard to, to, uh, 
to reconcile with that when I feel like the text, the the scripture seems to give a more clear evidence for annihilationism or even eternal conscious torment. Mm-hmm. Um, but but yeah, I think I think for I think it really the universalism has the has the push that it does because you know we would like to believe that that there should be a punishment for something, but that that punishment would have limits yeah. and. And there are also wonderful proof texts, like key scriptural teachings that are equally confusing and unsettling for your ECTs and your annihilationalists in support of universalism. I mean, John 12, Romans 5, 1 Peter 1 and 2, like 1 Peter 1 is Jesus going into the darkness to unlock the chains of the saints who are in Hades, Sheol, wherever they are, and Jesus redeems them post-resurrection. What do we do with that? First mm. Peter 2, uh, I tell you, um, it, it is not God's will that any man should perish, period, but that all, everyone, everyone should come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. And this is the work that Christ is doing. Again, this is the, like, Jesus' number two is like, yo, 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 at the end, uh-uh. No, disagree with Paul. It, everybody gets in. You know, now I'm extrapolating on the text, but, but, yeah, it's it's ill represented if you know anybody were to say there's nothing, there's no root for universalism in in scripture. Mm. No, mm. there is. I I want to speak just to the justice piece specifically yeah. too, because I think that certainly we have a strong internal sense of like justice needs to be served, and oftentimes it's with the people we disagree with the most. Right? <laughs> we want Classic. we want mercy for those who. Uh, you know they they did some bad things, but like they didn't do those bad things to us. So yeah. you know we are good. Yeah, in the end, they're a good person. They're good-hearted. But for the people that have wronged me personally, you know, not a good person. The the hells of uh, yeah, come down on them. The board. flames of hell. Yeah. Um, the idea that justice is served as eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, is in direct contrast to the to the ideas proposed by Jesus. Yeah. That like I you have said it hurt, or you've heard it. Yeah, yeah, I'm I'm butchering it. You've but it said, but I tell you, yes, uh, like the idea that God's just God's justice, it, I think, perhaps the the simplest way to say it is that it's a mystery to us. Um, I think that when we look at um justice in the biblical sense, oftentimes it takes the form of shalom. Yeah. Or oneness. oneness, restoration. Yep. Yeah, I love that. And if we challenge our our view of justice, that it is that restoration is not when, you know, I gain retribution for the thing you've done to me, but rather it's a restoration of our relationship. It's the thing that separated us in the past no longer separates us. I think it allows us to open our eyes to perhaps a different, a different approach to the concept yeah. of what justice could be. Hmm. Um, and again, I, I, I would also put myself in the category of a hopeful universalist, but um, yeah, I think, I think we've covered the, the full gambit perhaps of, of so, the different. Yeah. Go ahead. Just, just as a thought, like, so where, like, as we've gone through this, I've really enjoyed talking through all this with you guys. And I think, uh, it's highlighted to me at least a few things, but one thought for me is 
where where does hell fit into our lives as Christians? Like, is mm. this something like this conversation has been great? I would do this all day. Um, but does that mean that we should go around talking to everyone about hell and the different alternate views? And and so where does that sort of fit in? Is this something where, like, I mean, you were talking with the teaching, even like this idea that Jesus saves us from hell, mm-hmm. uh, and then sort of debunking a little bit of that. But where does this fit into our day to day lives? Is this something just between Christians that we're sharing about? Is this something I can share with my non-believer friends? I. I don't know if this this thought occurred to you to go there, but you had a really good answer for a question in the live stream last night about um, someone who shares their faith and feels like at times the boldness with which they share their faith offends other people. Right. And just taking a different approach, perhaps, to those kinds of conversations. I don't know if you wanted to speak to it. I don't totally remember what I said. Okay. Yes. <laughs> yeah. So let me take my best. Sure. Sorry. This, this, is, this is something I learned from Jimmy last night, but... The idea that the approach that we take in conversations we have with people about what it is that we believe, about what it, it, it is that we believe that's important about our belief system is not to start with, uh, you know, the eternal fate of their soul, perhaps, uh, or the idea of the exclusivity of our belief system, but simply to speak to our personal experiences as to like, what is it that has changed in my life since I've become a follower of Jesus? Because we, t- we have t- spent all day talking about the hereafter, yeah. about what comes in the, the next life. But so much of what Jesus spoke on and preached about was about the life here and now yeah. and how we are meant to be salt and light in the world. And that isn't just... Um, that isn't just talking about uh, faith in the sort of ethereal sense, in the in the the future sense, but like how how does it how does it, how do we bring heaven or hell or hell to the world we live in? Um, yeah, yeah, agreed. I think uh, I I would contend and put my hand up to for us as Christ followers to push against the lull of fear-based coercion mm. as a as a trick for faith it's wrong and it's damaging and so many people have been harmed by it you know the leading in to the the message of Jesus is not damnation and punishment you know he, and he he could have in his own teachings the key is that's why I taught on that is the key example of somebody even in Luke's description he, this guy's out he is the lowest circle treachery uh, of of hell. You know, stealing from his own people, and he employs people who steal from their own people, uh, and is not willing to give it back. This is a person who is damned forever, mm. and that is not how Jesus leads. Says, "Let's eat." Mm. That's Jesus' gospel pitch. Let's eat. Come down from the tree. It's weird. Come down. Let's eat. I'm going to stay with you. Is that cool? And Zacchaeus is like, "I have been met with the love, non-coercive, fear-based." is gone. I've been met with the love and intimacy of the divine that is shining a light on all of my shadows. I want to get rid of this because I've tasted the connection with the divine. Lord Jesus, I will I will put away, if I've stolen from anybody, I'll give them half of my, uh, not even give them back. I will, I will take half of my wealth and give it to the poor who, by the way, have lined the city. Mm. Uh, and if I've 
overtaxed anybody, I will give them back four times as much just as the law has required. And Jesus is like, it's not like, okay, good, because you were in danger of being sent into the lake of fire. He's like, salvation, he uses a word trick for his own name and the principle, the mechanics of salvation. Salvation has come to this house today. Truly, this is a son of Abraham. That's a smack in the face to the religious people hearing this. Truly, this is a son of uh, Abraham, for the son of man referring to himself has come to seek and save the lost. And Zacchaeus is freaking amped about it. It's like, oh my gosh, oh my gosh, oh my gosh. So Jesus could have rained down hell on him. Mm. Would that been a message that would have been equitable and healthy for Zacchaeus? Maybe in some version of correction, but it, he's already hearing that from the people around him, being like, this freaking guy. The people grumbled. They wanted his destruction. And Jesus is like, I don't. So I'm not, I'm not, my, I'm not here to bring hell on earth. I'm here to crash heaven into it. I think that should be the mission of us as, as Jesus followers. Sure, be conscious of like the justice of God and his dealing with and non-patience for evil. But let's be motivated by the love of God, by the, mm-hmm. the, the resurrected hope and power of the love of Christ uh, that's hopefully taking over the entire world. This phrase that I've been using all the time is like, as Christians, let's be part of the unstoppable force of good that God has going on in the world. Like, mm-hmm. let's, I don't know, I'm not motivated to talk to people about hell unless it's causing pain where I'm like, yeah, let's please talk about it and help. I would love to help clarify. Yeah. Let's talk about the love of God, the heaven that is crashing into earth that we get to be a part of. Yeah. I think it's really a matter of knowing where you put your, your emphasis, right? Like, uh, because I can hear the angry emails and letters already. I think it's, it's <laughs> worth mentioning that like, you know, Brandon.ike. Yeah. Meeting don't do it. <laughs> oh no. Cut that. Uh, uh, it, it's because it's, it's worth, because Jesus does tell us that, you know, it's better to cut off your, your arm if it causes you to sin or then go to, you know, uh, to hell. Yeah. get uh, thrown in, into hell. So like we, we, it, it is a thing to be aware of, I think. Mm-hmm. And it's a, and it's, and it's not a thing to be trifled with, but at the same time, like it's, I, you know, like you said, Jesus didn't lead with that. And if it really was something that was incredibly important, I think we'd know a lot more about it than we do. Mm. I think Jesus would have, I think Jesus told us what was important. Mm. What we have is what he wanted to tell us. Yeah. If he, if, 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 if our full understanding of what hell would be like, and people needed to know that, and we needed to lead with that, uh, I think that we'd have a better understanding of it, but, yeah. but we don't, there's a lot of question marks that we have. And, and personally, it doesn't really keep me up at night. Like, you know. I chomped at the bit to join this uh, conversation because it's 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 interesting, it's fascinating because it's one of the things we don't talk about very often. Uh, but I, I'll, at the end of the day, I don't think I think that if you're leading with that to try to get people to the faith, I think that you're taking the easy way out because it's very easy to you can understand why the pitch of oh you're gonna suffer forever, get in get in on this action, yeah. Uh, <laughs> Is it's an easy one to make because you're leading with the thing that people should be afraid of. Yeah, but it's one that's increasingly becoming less impactful as people get wise to it. But also, is you know you're you're leading with the the stick rather than the carrot, and it's and it's, it's the, it doesn't resonate right. And it's the it's counter to the mission and motivation of Jesus because what is the opposite of love? It's not hate. Mm-hmm. It's fear. Yeah. Right. So. John's gospel, perfect love casts out fear. You know, so I agree there's much that we as as Christians and the Christian church must repent of 
and our coercive nature of the eternal to to hook people, not carry it, but hook people into, um, man, God is going to punish you, have you burn forever. You better convert. And nowhere else in life does that work. Like imagine if, you know, if you and I are married, not to each other, but to our wives. If we were like, hey, listen, Heidi or M, um, I just love you so much. And I just want to say, if you don't choose me, yeah, I'm going to kill you and your family and burn your house down. What do you think? Here's the engagement <laughs> ring. That's a wrap for that relationship. Yeah. It's just, it's, it's, that's the coercive lack of power that fear embeds in people. Whereas the motivator of love and long form relationship is where the soul is nurtured and the system. I love how you put the mechanics of salvation mm. and faith take their root and grow, sprout and grow, you know? Yeah. So what is the impact of, of hell on us as Christians? It's to recognize and, and, see hell on earth today and realize how we can be catalysts for hope, for love, for peace in those environments. Good word. Well put. Nope. You'll learn to love, to love them in your heart or is to perdition you'll be bound, Garnet. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's park it there for today, friends. Brandon, thanks so much for joining us today. Yeah, it's been a great conversation and we hope you enjoy it. We'll see you next time.